When everything feels upside down, culture is what holds us together. It's the songs that soundtrack our morning commute and our quarantine living room dance parties, or that beckon us down to the bar to find someone to make out with. It's the shows we binge and the books we read to wind down after a hard day at work, and it's the meals we cook to remember our grandmothers. It's an excuse to get out of the house and go sit in a dark theater on a Saturday afternoon, and a litmus test for finding other people who see the world like we do. It's the thing that gives our lives meaning when it's hard to make sense of anything at all. I'm Andrea Dominic. And I'm Emily Friedlander. Welcome to The Culture Journalist, a podcast about the wild west of culture and culture journalism in the year 2020. Think of it as your guide to understanding the arts, technology, and a shifting labor landscape through the lens of culture reporting. Hosted by us, two freelance journalists from opposite sides of the country. Hey guys, welcome to The Culture Journalist. I think we could all use a little bit of a well-deserved break from 2020. So this week, we're going to take a trip back to 2013. We'll tell you why in a second. But Emily, what were you up to that year? I believe I was in my second year on staff at the Fader Magazine during a very different era of the Fader Magazine. And uh yeah, living in Brooklyn, taking some cool like trips for journalism, which is not something I've been able to do in recent years. How about you? Gosh, 2013, I was um I was living in Las Vegas. <laughs> I was a reporter for the daily newspaper there covering arts and entertainment and the business of nightlife, and this was also like peak commercial EDM. Mm. And I was reporting on all these crazy nightclubs that were opening up and these million dollar residencies that the DJs were getting there and, and, and listening to a lot of non-EDM music in my own time. I can imagine that you needed a breather sometimes. You know, when I knew we were going to be talking about 2013 today, I decided to look at a timeline of things that were going on in the world. To give you some idea, in January, that was when Obama was inaugurated for a second term. April was the tragic Boston Marathon bombing. June was when Edward Snowden leaked classified information from the NSA and revealed that the government was spying on us. Seems almost quaint now. (laughs) No, totally. And another thing that kind of ties to our discussion today, but that also was quaint was that that was the year that Tom York pulled his music from Spotify or denounced Spotify. Ahead of his time there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Super prescient. But yeah, on the music front, as this week's guest, Larry Fitzmorris, put it in an essay series called The Year That Changed Everything, it was, he says, Easily the most influential year in popular music. A year in which everything changed. From the nature of how music itself was released to how it was subsequently covered by the music press. 
BSA series runs on Larry's new Substack, Last Donut of the Night, um, which we've really been enjoying a lot. Um, and in it, he talks about how it's almost impossible, and I think he's right here, for the brain to hold space for how much incredible, influential music came out that year. I pulled up a list of Fader covers that year to see what came out, what people were talking about. At the beginning of that year was Christopher Owens, former frontman of the band Girls, and then Miguel, the singer. There was also that year Vampire Weekend, Solange Knowles, Juicy J, Earl Sweatshirt, Sierra, Haim, Mac Miller, R.I.P., Sky Ferreira, Trent Reznor, which was kind of like a looking back icon issue, Dev Hines, definitely a huge figure that year, and then Travis Scott. So, wow, right? I mean, that's crazy. I do remember 2013 standing out specifically in my mind as like this big ripe bowl of fruit. There was just so much good music. I still go back to my playlists on Spotify from that year. It was so exciting. And I completely forgot this, but it was the year that DJ Rashad's Double Cup came out, I think. That's right. And something I just wrote about um, for Pitchwork, actually, because it's coming out as a reissue, Arca's And, 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 And. One of my favorite pieces of music of the whole tens. Deaf Heaven's Sunbather came out. Um, and as Larry points out, Not to mention breakout albums by people like Chance the Rapper, Charlie XCX, Run the Jewels, Earl Sweatshirt, Ariana Grande. Like, not only were great albums made, but I mean, this was the year where a lot of pop music's most established stars today emerged for the first time. All at the same time, kind of. Yeah, it's insane. And we're going to talk about it and like, what the hell happened and what has happened since. So with that, we're happy to introduce Larry Fitzmorris, a writer and editor based in New York who writes the substack Last Donut of the Night, I believe is a Jay Dilla reference. He also writes for places like Pitchfork, Vice, The Guardian, The New York Times, and Stereogum. Larry, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We've actually worked together in many, many different newsrooms So many in succession that is almost comical. But what were you up to in 2013? I was at Pitchfork. Uh, I I had started there in 2010. I don't even remember what title I had at that point. It was kind of, you know, that was kind of back when Pitchfork was much smaller and independently owned. So I think some of us kind of took kind of jack of all trades uh, (laughs) positions there. And I was, you know, going out and seeing friends and doing the things that we can't really do anymore. <laughs> so. I remember that time as like, I had left Pitchfork not that long before that. And Larry, you were like the king of the blogs or you were like the king <laughs> of case making specifically. Wasn't it tracks? Like, was yeah. That like- yeah. So uh, yeah. So uh, that's what I got hired to do actually when I started there as their associate staff writer was run the track section, which really was, I mean, you know, it was little more than kind of a combination of keeping track of what blogs 
work promoting and also just posting about stuff I liked, posting about stuff that my colleagues liked. And I don't know. I thought nothing of it when I, I took the job other than it's nice to have a job, but I guess, I, I guess it had some influence. Oh, definitely. That was like a moment in music journalism. And what now, seven years later, got you thinking about 2013 enough to write this ongoing, awesome series about it? Well, it's funny because, you know, I've been thinking about doing a newsletter for about a year and a half now. I've been freelancing on and off for about two and a half years. And when I first thought about the newsletter, I kind of took different forms. I thought about doing something that was more serialized. And I was thinking about kind of just looking back at the 2010s in general and a lot of influential releases that came out. And I realized as I was thinking about that, that a lot of them came from 2013. And as somebody who writes a fair amount of criticism and thinks a lot about the hegemony of pop music and how it kind of shapes culture and how culture shapes pop music as well, you know, I started to realize like, wow, like it had a lot of classic albums that uh, I think a lot of us still return to to this day, but it also had these kind of cultural milestones that kind of rippled through the rest of the decade, more so than kind of any other year. So yeah, I mean, I just took that idea and had been workshopping it in my head and after about a month and change of doing this newsletter, which I'm now in my third month of, I was like, well, I might as well start with this. It's funny because I actually was going to do just one essay at first, but now it's kind of become its own thing. So, Yeah, and it's kind of fun because it seems at least right now, like each one leads to the next. Like after you had the first one, you talked about Robin Thicke and Blurred Lines talking about how the video for it was so offensive that it opened up discussions about misogyny and sexism in the industry in this major kind of viral way. And then Miley Cyrus, then after she had this infamous, was it VMA's performance? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of the song with Robin Thicke. Then she goes on to release Bangers, which itself opens up this huge conversation about cultural appropriation. What were some of the trends, either musically or in terms of where the industry was going in the macro sense that stick out to you most from 2013? It's actually really funny because, I mean, I've been kind of obsessed with Blurred Lines' place in 2010's pop culture. Blurred Lines, to me, is kind of like the OJ chase of the 2010s. I, I mean, the same way... And- OJ made America establish this really well that the OJ trial and the chase and the murder and the abuse that was involved with that, it kind of opened up a lot of different avenues as far as where pop culture was going, where, you know, society was going, our views on race, our views on misogyny and violence against women. And it had all these ripple effects. You know, we have the Kardashians because of the OJ trial. If you really want to do this, you can also probably connect trump getting the presidency to the oj trial because the kardashians kind of pioneered the reality tv platform that he thrived off of and gained Mm. this image on so you know there's a lot of ripple effects from that and there were a lot of ripple effects from blurred lines i mean it destroyed robin thick's career which is fascinating in its own right and it was the first time in the 2010s that it seemed like anybody in cultural discussion wanted to have any sort of meaningful and visible talk about misogyny and the role it plays in pop music 
I think before that, especially amongst culture writers, I think that there was kind of a hesitance to talk about that, especially amongst men for, you know, uh, I wonder why. But, um, Mm. you know, it also sparked these copyright disputes, too, of plagiarizing melodies and what counts as copyism, what counts as an homage, what counts as an interpretation. And the outcome of that lawsuit, which was Pharrell and Robin Thicke having to pay Marvin Gaye's family millions of dollars, that's going to drive so many lawsuits for probably decades to come. And it has a real effect on creativity in terms of mm. in terms of songwriting. So that was a big trend. I think also, you know, you saw Beyonce pioneering the surprise release with her self-titled album at the end of the year. Not only yeah. did that set this standard for, oh, you can just release an album whenever you want now. And there's caveats to that, but that'll be for the newsletter. But, you know, also... You know, the album came out near the end of December. Typically, you try and put marquee albums like that out to give publications some time to add to their year-end lists. And Mm. they kind of busted open that quarterly release schedule thing. Now you kind of just have to be prepared for anything to come out at any point. I remember the surprise release being a thing that year even arca's like an and and was a surprise release like it was almost like artists were trying to purposely release music at inconvenient times so that the media had to like scramble or like releasing at midnight yeah i actually as as long as we're talking about the effect that this has on people who work in media in pitchfork's case specifically there was no real practice up until 2013 of having night and weekend writers, mm. um, which is kind of crazy if you think about that now, because that's such a facet of how media runs. So, you know, like earlier that year, My Bloody Valentine released their first album in what, like 20 years or something. And we had trouble finding somebody to write about it at that very moment because there was nobody on schedule to take care of it. It dropped mm. on a Saturday. So, you know, you did have the music industry kind of shaping the way music publications and culture publications had to operate in terms of their day-to-day. Yeah, and by dint of that, the way that we were consuming and conversing about music just as fans. I mean, it's kind of like if you look at it from a zoomed-out perspective, people were playing with the internet as a tool for coming up with creative ways to release music and create a splash. And then with something like Blurred Lines, the idea of making a splash by being as shocking as possible, and then this kind of weird razor edge between virality and like cancellation already starting then, Mm. you know? Yeah, no, it definitely does. That's a thing for sure. But I also think that kind of the first suggestion that somebody could be cancellation proof that kind of started with Miley in terms of kind of female pop stars and the things you could and couldn't get away with publicly moving forward. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your thinking was for that essay? Yeah, it was, in, it was funny because I didn't even mention this in the essay. I, that's the thing. Sometimes you think about these things and you write about them and then you think more about them after you write about them. But in 2020, everybody takes all pop seriously, both good way and kind of to its detriment. In 2013, it was the exact opposite. I think that something like Bangers 
was seen from a distance by a lot of critics and people who work in music writing is just kind of, oh, you know, like, whatever this is, she just wants attention. You know, this mm. is just, you know, stupid Disney stuff, so... Or, you know, this is, like, stupid music that we don't care about because it's pop. But Bangers was really a really interesting moment, I felt, for pop music in which we had watched previous people who emerging from the Disney sphere and making some quote-unquote wrong moves as society impolitely defines it and becoming castigated for it. I think that, you know, what we saw happen to Britney Spears in the 2000s was definitely a result of that. There had been this kind of set expectation from people coming from the Disney world that you had to make some sort of a smooth transition. You know, Miley very self-consciously and very strategically gripped that up with bangers. And not only that, but she sensed, whether intentionally or not, the fact that hip-hop and specifically black pop in general was becoming kind of the lingua franca of pop music, as it always has been. But I think in the early parts of the 2010s, pop radio was very white. It was a lot of Katy Perry stuff, basically. Katy Perry and people who sounded like Katy Perry. And, you know, a lot has changed in terms of who are considered pop superstars in the last 10 years. And, you know, Miley effectively kind of did a little bit of racial cosplay with bangers. She worked with a lot of black pop artists and black rap artists to make that happen. But it was a very canny alignment with the way the culture was moving. And, you know, the fact that she's disavowed it since is almost irrelevant because I think pop music kind of became bangers even if she has moved on from it itself. Hey guys, Emily and I just want to take a quick moment to give a shout out to all of our wonderful paid subscribers. This is a completely self-funded, independent project, and all of your support, whether that is our $5 a month subscription plan or our $50 yearly plan, really makes a huge difference for us. Or if the paid subscription isn't in the cards for you, you can still get us for free in your inbox every week by signing up at theculturejournalist.substack.com. And you can show support by taking a few seconds to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or even just sharing our episodes on your social media platforms and telling your friends about us. We love sharing these stories with you guys, and thank you so much for listening. We were talking earlier about this broad swath of releases, which I think barely even skims the surface of all the great music that came out. Larry, how do you account for so many innovative releases coming out in 2013? It's funny because it's like, it was a really loaded year. So far, I've talked in the essay series about Robin Thicke and Sky Ferreira and Miley Cyrus, and I kind of had this throat clearing intro talking about a lot of smaller records and kind of other trends that were happening. But, you know, you also had Beyonce and you had Kanye and you had Drake and you had Daft Punk came back. And I think that that year is marked by a lot of event records. And I think that was also the year that event records became increasingly more of a thing, if not something that the music industry was more consciously operating with like the the general 12-month arc of music coverage can sometimes be centered around <laughs> event records like okay you know something big is dropping in the fall maybe it's Kendrick maybe it's Drake how do you plan weeks of content both before after and during those records uh 
2016 was another year for that in which it just seemed like everybody released something. So was 2010. You know, it does kind of feel like the coverage of music changes as a result. More time is spent on focusing on the, the myriad ways of covering these big records and less time is spent kind of digging in between the margins and exposing audiences to new things they wouldn't have otherwise heard. So I think that's kind of an unfortunate transaction that's taken place as a result. One of the things I remember from that time, especially even in like the way that, for example, Fader covers were rolled out, there was almost a sense that taste and like the rise of a new star would often occur in this way where like, Solange has this album and then Dev Hines who she had worked with then later is on the cover of the fader and then a little bit after that it was like kindness Dev Hines collaborator ends up on the fader in addition to catching a viral wave there was also more of a sense of this like community of artists that were all rising to fame and then bringing their people along with them for the next album cycle yeah, I mean, I think the ways in which music is discovered now has obviously changed a lot and is a lot less based on taste. I, I'm not even sure taste has anything to do with it at this point in terms of wide-scale music discovery. But I think cosigns were important. And I also think, you know, as you see this with Yeezus, which also came out that year, you had all these random collaborators were just popping in and out these voices who would just appear on the record for a few seconds. You know, I mean, you have Chief Keef on a song for literally eight seconds and then he's gone. All these, you know, pop stars as ghostly apparitions. You have all these people contributing production behind the scenes. You had Daft Punk, you had Jack Donahue from Salem. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, he he had a co-write on Black Skinhead. And, you know, I mean, the Daft Punk album that came out that year, too, Random Access Memories, was very similar as well in terms of, you know, here's this carousel of collaborators. And I think those two records and Beyonce's album as well, you know, suddenly pouring over the liner notes for these mm-hmm. albums was kind of a fun Easter egg thing. But it also gave this opportunity for people to be like, oh, you know, so-and-so wrote co-wrote the Solange song. Here's five songs you need to know by them. And then suddenly you have a bunch of 14-year-old TikTok kids who are listening to Panda Bear or something. Um, So yeah, I I mean, it is kind of interesting how the beginning of this era we're still in, where the liner notes have as much, if not greater, influence than what music publications used to have. Yeah, and it was this sort of cycle where it was like, okay, so this star is collaborating with this person and then six months later that person is stepping out into the limelight Mm. you know also i remember with like earl sweatshirt had this important album come out and then he had been hanging out with mac miller and then mac miller has this really big moment where he puts out an album that's sort of like rebranding his sound Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because when Mac Miller passed, I saw a lot of critics express this, that he was somebody who was really just starting to discover his voice uh, as an artist. Mm. And he was really growing in a way that no one could have anticipated. But also, you know, there have been several years, as you're saying, and it started with watching movies with the sound off from this year 
of people taking him increasingly seriously after some very disastrous early critical coverage. And would he have made that artistic evolution on his own? Regardless, who's to say? It's really hard to predict. I think everybody's influenced by everything around them. That being said, I think it meant a lot to have a lot of kind of cooler, more in the no co-signing people saying, hey, take this guy seriously. He's actually, his head's in the right place. I mean, you had Flying Lotus produce on that album. These were quote unquote people like me kind of have their heads up their asses with regards to criticism and taste makes them go, oh, okay, maybe I should give this guy a second shot. And, you know, as, as a result, he was able to grow from that. And this brings up another big through line in 2013. It had been in the works for some time, which is just kind of, you know, many of the people you've mentioned, Flying Lotus, even Earl Sweatshirt at that time, Arca and Evian Christ and Hudson Mohawk showing up on Jesus. And this is also a time that I come to think of as, you know, a moment of collapse between the pop world and the underground or it was this was a really really big sea change i think for underground musicians mm. yeah I, I i agree with that completely i mean it was kind of the point in which i think pop was looking a lot more towards the underground for what's next and what's new and like it's not so much that this started in 2013 like pop stars taking inspiration from the underground and kind of left field inspirations. It's more that I think the general public became more aware of it and highlighting that connection became kind of more intrinsically related to music coverage. And again, you know, if we're talking about the ways in which music is covered by publications and the role of criticism, which I I think has been on an inarguable decline over the last seven or eight years. And certainly you could use 2013 as the point of origin for that, because it suddenly didn't really matter that much if somebody is telling you what to like, because, you know, if there's a, a pop star you respect who shows up at a ghetto Gothic night or is wearing hood by air or someone like ASAP Rocky, who in the early parts of his career, made his art very much about cultivation uh you know travis scott who as we said earlier kind of like this is this is the year that you see him start popping up you know yeezus was essentially kanye doing a travis scott album before travis scott started making albums and that was Travis's introduction to a lot of people who didn't maybe have their ears a hundred percent to the ground. And as somebody working at what was arguably probably the most read music publication at the time, nobody at Pitchfork was checking for Travis Scott in 2013. And that's obviously an oversight that was made. Why do you think that is? I think race has a part to do with it. I mean the yeah. the entire editorial staff was, I, I, or I think almost the entire editorial staff was white at the time, so that always plays a role. But I, I you know, I also just think that it was, except for the fader, um, who, as you said, put Travis on the cover that year, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, he came to he like came and visited the office. I remember. Right. Yeah, and and Fader's always. I mean, Fader. I think especially around that time and in its heyday was always good with saying, "Hey, you know, like 
This person that might not be the person you're talking about right now, but they'll be the top person you're talking about in, you know, nine months or 18 months from now. But I don't think Travis was on a lot of people's radars until Jesus. That was kind of this introductory moment for him. And what's funny too about that, and again, this is where you can kind of trace criticism kind of having less importance. There, It still took critics several years to really even start to comprehend that he was a big thing. And now he's one of the biggest pop stars in the world. <laughs> so, you know. And now flash forward seven years, and we have on the same day, Travis Scott has a McDonald's commercial and his own Travis, you can order now order the Travis Scott meal at McDonald's. <laughs> Mm, really the same day that comes out kanye releases a video of himself pissing on a grammy yeah (laughs) let's just let's just leave that information there for a second (laughs) yeah the mcdonald's thing is funny too because i think that i actually wrote about that in one of my newsletters this week about how uh i guess infuriated it makes me because this is just kind of another way cultures change in general but I think that there was a period of time in which musicians aligning themselves with certain brands or, you know, in this case, corporations would be seen as a good or a bad look. And, you know, and I'm not even talking about, you know, the nineties or notions of indie or selling out or whatever. I'm just, I'm saying that these were values that were held, I think even well into the early 2010s. And I'm not sure 2013 was a starting point for this, but I'm curious if you guys agree with me or not, because it does seem to me like now, as far as like artists aligning with corporations, it's not a good or bad thing anymore. It just is. Yeah. I mean, I remember around that time as being the first moment in my lifetime or career or whatever, where for the underground or independent music, where that became more acceptable. Like I remember best coast a few years prior had had some corporate sponsorship and she got like trashed on by david keenan and the wire you know like it was considered really something you didn't do or it was just starting to be acceptable for independent artists to do that in 2013 i think it became a bit more normalized and then now don't even really think about it you know it's funny because when i was watching that travis scott commercial I had such conflicting feelings about it. Like, is this generational? Because it was part of me that was like, ew, really? And then the other part of me was like, well, like, don't knock him. He's probably getting so much money for this. Like, wouldn't you? With sort of the asterisks of like, especially right now, can't knock anybody for trying to get money, however. But what's the relationship now between artistry and self-sufficiency and brand alignment? You know, even look at music festivals, they're just kind of giant ad arcades now. And Mm. you just see this real encroachment on music and art and culture that's associated with it as opportunities for brands to like mainline themselves in because they're now having to skip the step of the critic and the media gatekeepers that for better or for worse had long been, I guess, sort of the buffer between you know, art and advertisement, not, yeah. not to do aggrandizing about it, but... No, I, yeah. it feels generational to me, too, because kind of a turning point for me with how willing people are to accept corporations into their lives was one of the Parkland Survivor kids, David Hogg, I remember when Bank of America was like, we're anti-gun, 
David Hogg was like, thank you, Bank of America. And it's like, right, no, yeah. like, fuck you, Bank of America. Like, you're a yeah. fucking bank. Like, don't thank the banks. But like, you know, I like, mm. honestly, it's like, I was like, oh, I think these, I think this, these younger generations have a different perspective on this. I try not to be too critical of it because I think it's really important to listen to younger kids and to not dismiss. I don't think anybody should dismiss what anybody younger has to say because they're always the ones leading the future and they're often doing more than we are but Mm -hmm. it was just this curious moment where i was like "Hmm, okay this is dark (laughs) and it was also around that time i'd say like the mid 10s when just in the wider culture you have this increased corporate embrace of conversations around identity you know it's kind of like the lean-in feminism but this moment where In a good way, identity politics was becoming a big part of the conversation. And then corporations were sort of like co-opting that conversation. And I felt that even in, you know, the way that mainstream media was changing at that time to probably at all the publications where we were working for the better to become more open to new voices, both in terms of who was being covered and who was doing the covering Yeah, you know, it's funny, and I plan on mentioning this when I write about Jesus, but one thing that was dispiriting and interesting to witness, and I think kind of resulted in the beginning of a sea change, I never want to give anybody too much credit, because I don't think anybody has actually done much when it comes to diversifying anything anywhere, but I remember when Jesus was being reviewed the talking point amongst the music writer community was like, wow, so here's this record where a man is talking about sex in a very aggressive way at points, and there's not a single Mm -hmm. woman out there who's written about it. And it actually ended up launching this, I believe it was Spin, that did a Sheezus roundtable where it was several uh, female-identifying critics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was several female-identifying critics who I all really respect and love reading their writing and would definitely do so if they weren't being, you know, corralled into this special section in which they can talk about a rap album away from the men in the room. Mm. And that's what it kind of felt like. And it was well-intentioned. I'm not faulting anybody who put it together or anybody who was involved with it, because when you do something like that, I think it really points out how homogenous criticism actually is. And so I think after that, you started to see something resembling an effort to feature Mm. a more diverse selection of voices. But I mean, you know, and we can go into this for hours on end, but I think always it, it's always like, well, let's get a freelancer to do this. It's never like, oh. let's make a person of color a senior editor <laughs> or like, let's have somebody who's non-binary in charge of things. It's always about padding out the lower ranks, which yep. is yeah. very dispiriting to, to witness all the time. <laughs> I have a question, like, you know, a guy talking about sex in an aggressive way on a hip hop album, like that wasn't anything novel you know yeah what is it about 2013 that started sparking these conversations or causing critics to look around the room and being like hey maybe we should question this or get some other voices to weigh in on this well this was right around when twitter i think started really taking hold as Mm. a i mean it had been around for a bit but jesus felt like the first record where the conversation 
far outlasted the actual album promo cycle where it was just people talking about this for weeks and weeks and weeks and analyzing every element of it. And, you know, I might be wrong about this, but I feel like the phrase hot take was also coined around this time too. Um, Cause I remember piece, 2013 think being the think piece too. Yeah. Think piece as well. These kind of pejorative terms that often are used to just like, I mean, we all use them as slang at this point, but obviously it's like if you say something somebody disagrees with online, they'll be like, oh, what, is this a think piece? And it's like, no, you know, it's, what are you talking about? But um, when was the Twitter retweet introduced? Ooh, oh, man. that's a good question. I don't know that I recall a time before retweets. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely remember having to write RT in front of tweets early on. So sometime within like those couple of years, that was a huge thing. Yeah, I think that definitely amplified the nature of discussions that could happen. I mean, before then, I had an editor who was, if not old fashioned, then just really hoping that things weren't going to change the way they ended up changing, where they're like, the review speaks for itself. You shouldn't have to talk about the album or the music. I disagree with that principle just because it, also negates the ability for reconsidering opinions or revising or returning to, which I think is really critical for criticism in general. But also it's like, okay, well now you could say something in 2,500 words about an album that people, mostly your peers would praise you for, or you can just tweet something out and just start a conversation there and hash it out in public with a bunch of other people for no money. And it's about your preference of approach. <laughs> I mean, we all do both, right? No, totally. I mean, it was funny that Jesus was kind of the linchpin for, okay, like, why is there so much aggressive sex talk on this album when Kanye records were littered with that previously? I think maybe people just weren't paying attention. I also don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of music publications that were run by white men often felt a deep discomfort discussing sex and female agency uh, within sex and music. And as to why they didn't feel comfortable with that, I think that should be left to everyone's imagination. shift to talking a little bit about what was going on in independent music at the time and like underground music specifically and you wrote a little bit about this in the sky ferrera piece for your series about the rise of alt pop how was the zeitgeist shifting in the un the musical underground at this time so you had a kind of splintering right I interviewed Joe Steinhardt, the founder of Don Giovanni, a great independent punk label that's currently based out of Philly. And, you know, one thing he pointed out to me was that sometime over the last seven or eight years, every single independent band suddenly had to have a manager and a touring agent and a booking mm -hmm. agent and a team and a publicist and a sync licensing person and a lawyer. And being independent became its own business to the point mm -hmm. where the word itself gradually started to lose all meaning. I think there's a lot of arguments you could have about at which point the phrase indie lost meaning, but certainly 
around 2013, you definitely saw the cementing of indie becoming more of a genre, suggesting a few sonic ticks that you were familiar with than any sort of ethos that people were living by. And I'm not saying that truly independent artists don't exist. I'm saying that most of the time, they're not the ones receiving the most coverage that are being designated as indie. Yeah, and I think that we all sort of lived through this even before 2013, where there was this moment where underground artists realizing like, oh, I can use the internet to connect with fans all over the world. Oh, I can actually maybe make money from this thing instead of, you know, resigning myself to a life of like playing basement shows or just kind of maybe recognition within the academy Mm -hmm. or something. And it was an exciting moment for self-publishing at the time. We can focus on connecting with a niche, the niche of listeners who we can connect with because of the internet. People were suddenly able to move laterally instead of operating within these like hierarchical constructs of these traditional institutions that were dictating how people create and access music. I think of it almost like the financial collapse of 2008, kind of what's happened with, I guess we can call it kind of the lie that independent or formerly independent artists have been sold throughout the decade. That lie definitely solidified around 2013 or so of, you know, you can be a successful mid-tier or even low mid-tier artist in terms of visibility. And, you know, you can be financially successful as long as you do X, 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 and X. Um, And none of those things really have anything to do with making music. So you have an entire industry of artists who are making music that it's for general consumption and it's getting out to the audiences, but, you know, they're making music they're having to do things to make sure they appear on websites more frequently. There's syncs, there's TV appearances, there's late night shows. It's they're being run like they're major league pop stars and they're making maybe a fraction of what major league pop stars would make. You know, I've talked to highly visible artists in the indie sphere or who are considered indie. They're not making much money and they really weren't before the pandemic either. I would venture to guess that there's a manager out there with a bunch of indie acts who's probably making more in one month than any of his acts take home in one year. And I find that I find that very disheartening. You know, that's what happens when the underground is kind of flattened and combined with so-called mainstream culture. You really don't have a difference in terms of how things are treated financially or business-wise or even in terms of structures of power. And as a result, you have a lot more people being taken advantage of. I totally agree with you. And sometimes I'm almost like, Was the internet ultimately a good thing for underground music? I really thought it was, but maybe it wasn't. (laughs) But I will say, like, at that time, like, for me, as someone who came up focusing more on emerging, challenging music, like, this was a really exciting time. And I think that in 2013, at least, there was this feeling, especially cemented by events like Yeezus, where it's like, oh my God, these voices can actually shape the conversation. And we have all of this music, all of these influences at our fingertips. 
it was a great time for creativity, which I think is why you have so many good independent albums at that time. Yeah, I completely agree. And, uh, you know, also just a reminder, I'm like, I can be very dreadfully pessimistic uh, about, about everything, but yeah, you're totally right about that for sure. And I think also like when I talk about this cottage industry of indie artists that aren't really indie and kind of exist in this liminal space, I'm thinking more about artists that kind of sound like have a very specific like synth poppy kind of mainstream marketed sound i feel like mm-hmm. the artists you might be talking about are more kind of like true blue innovators than you know another band that sounds like churches <laughs> yeah i mean like dj rashad yeah. having a moment putting footwork on this global map those kinds of things but i think i'm just trying to say that i totally agree with you that it did not go I don't really like where it went and that it was a lie. But at the time, I think it did encourage a lot of creativity. The lie encouraged a lot of creativity. (laughs) I agree with that for sure. It's interesting because I agree with you, Emily. I was also really interested more in underground music. There was just so much to mine from it that year. Like you were saying, everything from Arca to... That Dark Side album came out that year with Dave Harrington and Nicholas Jar. I mean, that was that's an incredible album. I just remember feeling an energy and ethos and kind of freedom of weird, uncharted sounds, and it, it galvanized me. I felt tapped into something present. But then the next year, we have Lady Gaga doing Doritos-sponsored performance art at South by Southwest, which brings us to our next softball question for you, Larry, which is, did the internet end up delivering on its promises for making the world of music a better place? Uh, I mean, I don't think so. (laughs) It's tough. As I was saying before, it's just like, there's so many expectations placed on everybody. Now, I actually wrote about this earlier this year for Stereo Gum something that social media has done and kind of interconnectivity has done is created this expectation for creators and artists to be always on and to be always talking. I think also like it's more rare these days when you have an artist that's not online, that doesn't have this constant social media presence, engaging with fans or presenting a different persona. It's very surreal in that way. And it's certainly reflective of the way we all live digitally now. I always go back to Mitski here as kind of a case study for this, where Mitski was basically run off of social media over the last several years because usually somebody quits social media because maybe they're receiving too much negative attention. Maybe they are being spammed with hate mail. Or Mitski, God knows what's in her inbox, but the case seemed to be the exact opposite to me publicly where you had this fandom that was so intense and so outsized, especially considering the levels of which that Mitski operates in terms of the music that she makes, that when she stepped away from social media, it was news on websites. Websites were like, Oh, you know, Mitski deletes her Twitter or whatever. And good for her. Maybe she should never come back. Like, it seems like, There's a lot of really intense energy now that's associated with 
being an artist online and interacting with fans and the way fans treat you and the way fans see you as not just a product, which almost seems like a simpler era to think of it that way, but as a portion of their life, like you're, you're a part of them. I think anybody with a capacity for empathy who's on the receiving end of that, it has to be incredibly exhausting. And I feel like that's the experience for a lot of modern musicians these days. So no, I think, I think it's made life a lot worse for people involved in music. I can't see many upsides at this point. I would, I, I guess I am sort of an eternal optimist to my detriment, but I mean, we need those. <laughs> I, I would, I would challenge you on that. First and foremost, I agree with everything you said in that all of the sort of weird, negative, hyper-commercial, hyper-connected, disconnected impact that the internet has had on the music industry. And it's really complicated and also defined, like, the separation between art and entertainment, right? Mm. But also, and it hasn't arrived yet, but we're really seeing a certain leveling of the playing field as far as, again, access to institutions and tools Mm. for creativity. And I think the breakdown of barriers and access to collaboration and the sort of come up the underground was able to enjoy in 2013. I think we are either seeing right now or going to see a new accelerated wave of that with the Mm -hmm. pandemic. I've been doing a lot of reporting lately, talking to different people in the music business about how they are getting by right now. And obviously everyone's having a super hard time and it sucks. Right. But I am equally hearing a lot about how people have just had to become self-sufficient, which has meant turning to the internet and technology to create new platforms for them to either keep working or keep creating art or both. And what that's reinforcing, I'm finding, is that people can do it without the powers that be. Mm. And I'm hoping that that is going to be one of the long-term results of everything. The internet, in terms of this kind of accessibility we're talking about, it's really... In a lot of ways, I see it as neither good nor bad, but it's just a paradigm shift. And you're going to see a lot of ugly, but I think a lot of a lot of potential and innovation continue to come from it as well. No, you're so right, man. I think, I think that's dead on. I completely agree with you that we're at kind of a breaking point that was going to arrive whether or not the pandemic was here, where it's exciting. I think, I think that there's a lot of quote-unquote rules that could be potentially rewritten. I think that there are power shifts that could happen that could be really monumental in terms of artists and how their work is disseminated and how they're remunerated for their work and the protections that they can receive in terms of their mental health and financial protection and overall safety. I think that, you know, the opportunities are quite literally as endless as they've ever been. And that's kind of a bright spot. I think that's something to be really excited about the future right now is there's no doubt that there's a lot of smart people, a lot of smart younger people, especially who are thinking about how to really make this a new era for themselves. Larry, has culture changed that significantly since 2013? Like, do you think, are we still playing out the themes of 2013 over and over or what's new? Has there been another year like it? I mean, it changes so quickly now, right? Like we all woke up this morning and, now TikTok, which we've been told is the 17,000th thing that is going to save the music industry and make money for everybody, you're not going to be able to download it in 48 hours or something. I don't mm-hmm. even know. I don't. I mean, everything changes so much now, man. 
I felt like there was, and I kind of allude to this a little in the first installment of the 2013 essay series, that 2014 almost felt like a lull because so many things changed in 2013 and happened that felt monumental. And ever since I would argue like 2016, I don't think I've really ever felt a lull since. Seems like everything keeps changing. And I mean, you can attribute that to the kind of warp speed that the news cycle operates under and kind of our shortening attention spans as we get older and as digital life just kind of takes us further in that direction. But one reason why I've been so interested in looking back at 2013 is because it does feel like a million years ago now. Mm-hmm. It feels quaint to think about a time in which a music publication would find it remarkable to let women talk about a Kanye West album. That seems like kind of a funny thing to think about now, considering the at least artificial stratifications that have been made in terms of representation and who talks about things critically. But that's just how much things have changed. Whenever we talk about past values in history and in society, we're we're always talking about how, well, we've gotten better since the 60s or, you know, things have changed since civil rights or whatever. But like, no, things have changed like in the last six years. Time moves fast. Also, people were a lot worse a a lot more recently (laughs) than you probably remember. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, like, as I said, I can be very negative about the way things have progressed because I think the way things have progressed, a lot of it's been very negative. But I think that there's been a lot of positive change, too, in terms of how we all talk about things and the perspectives of which society is generally open to and you know, even amidst a lot of the scary fringe or not so fringe conspiracy stuff that keeps popping up in the endless mainstreaming of white supremacy, like there's a lot of hope in terms of like how things continue to progress and the ideas that people are open to. And that's why it's funny to look back because you can see how much better we've gotten at a time in which it feels like we're only getting worse. Mic drop Larry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, that just about covers it or or gets us started looking back at 2013 and seeing how we got here now. Uh, Larry Fitzmorris, thank you so much for coming on the show and for your awesome work. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's like part of why I love doing this podcast is because I get to talk to old friends and hear their perspectives at such an isolating time. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And how can people follow your work? So it's lastdonutofthenight.substack.com. It's a paid newsletter, but I do send out free installments. So you can choose to sign up for the free version in which you'll get some free newsletters, or you can choose for the paid version in which you get access to everything. It's $5 a month or $50 a year. And... You can also just follow me on Twitter and you can also unfollow me on Twitter if you don't like what I'm saying there, which is could be likely. So you never know. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Larry. Yeah, thanks, guys. That's it for this week's episode of The Culture Journalist. Our show was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our theme music was composed by Mark Donica. 
for links to Larry's work in Substack, as well as more episodes, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And be sure to rate, subscribe, and share us wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism.